in a remote location high above the North Sea. This castle has over 700 years of history, a turbulent past which has left it as a ruinous reminder of the violence and bloodshed that Northumberland has witnessed. This castle is said to be home to a number of spirits that were tied to the building in life, and most famously it is the setting of a famous Northumbrian legend of a knight's quest to save a maiden in distress. Tonight, join me as we dare to enter the ancient ruin of Dunstanbrack Castle. Welcome to episode 15 of How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location, and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. This week we head to a lonely ruin in a remote area of Northumberland and ask just how haunted is Dunstanbrack Castle? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Dunstanbrack Castle is a spectacular ruin, set against a rugged seascape in the heart of Northumberland. It's situated between the villages of Craster, famed for its kippers, and Embleton. Building began in 1313, when Thomas, 2nd Earl of Lancaster, ordered that a castle be built on a lonely stretch of rock, taking advantage of the site's natural defences and the existing earthworks of an Iron Age fort. Thomas was an influential and powerful English baron. He was the second richest man in England after the king, his cousin, King Edward II, and he owned land all across the kingdom. He had a turbulent relationship with the king, due to believing him to be an ineffective monarch. It is unknown why Thomas wanted a castle built in Northumberland, or why he wanted it built in this particular site, which albeit was defensive, but it was so far away from anything else in the county. 
It's most likely he was anticipating the unrest which was rarely too far away at that point in time, and this castle would offer him sanctuary, as well as being a status symbol for his enormous wealth. It's been suggested that he likely planned to build a settlement around the castle, in the hope of Dunstanborough becoming its own town. Building work on the castle had commenced by May 1313, with labourers beginning to excavate the moat and starting to construct the castle buildings. The castle's construction was overseen by a mason documented to be named Master Elias. There is no evidence to back this up, but it could be that this was Elias de Burton, who had led the construction of Conwy Castle in Wales, which had been constructed between 1283 and 1287. Materials such as iron, Newcastle coal, and wood from Scandinavia were brought in to ensure that this was the very finest castle. And by the end of 1313, £184 had been spent on the project. A licence to crenellate, which is a form of royal authorisation for a new castle, was issued by King Edward II in 1316, and a castle constable was appointed in 1319. He was charged with defending both the castle and the surrounding manors of Embleton and Stamford. Twelve years later, in 1325, the castle was complete. The result in Dunstanborough Castle was huge. The largest castle in all of Northumberland, almost 11 acres in size, protected on one side by the cliff face and on another by the savage North Sea. It had a stone curtain wall, a massive gatehouse and six towers around the outside. Thomas didn't live to see his castle finished, as on the 22nd of March 1322 he was executed near Pontefract Castle for treason. He had led an army of rebels at the Battle of Boroughbridge in opposition to the king. It was believed he may have visited the castle once during its construction in 1319, when he was on his way north to join King Edward II's military campaign against Scotland. With Thomas's death, the castle's ownership fell to the crown, and Edward considered it a useful fortress for protection against the increased threat from Scotland. Initially it was managed by Robert D. Emeldon, a merchant from Newcastle, and it was protected by a garrison of 40 men-at-arms and 40 light horsemen. In 1362, Dunstanborough Castle became the property of John of Gaunt. John was the son of King Edward III and married Blanche of Lancaster in 1359. They were third cousins. Upon the death of his father-in-law, the Duke of Lancaster, in 1361, John received half his lands, the title Earl of Lancaster, and distinction as the greatest landowner in Northern England. John inherited the rest of the Lancaster property when Blanche's sister, Maud, Countess of Leicester, died on the 10th of April 1362. John received another title, the Duke of Lancaster, from his father on the 13th of November 1362. By then he was well established, he owned at least 30 castles including Dunstanborough, and estates across England and France, and he maintained a household comparable in scale and organisation to that of a monarch. He owned land in almost every county in England, and this produced a net income for him of around £8,000 and £10,000 a year. That's equivalent today of between £6 and £7.5 million. John of Gaunt didn't visit Dunstanborough Castle until 18 years after taking ownership of it, when he visited in 1380. He ordered that Dunstanborough Castle should be improved defensively, with additional fortifications being constructed around the gatehouse. Dunstanborough wasn't really involved in the Anglo-Scottish border wars, due to be in position so out of the way, as to offer no strategic benefit should it be captured, and it had a substantial garrison. In 1381, the Great Rising broke out in England, 
and during this period of civil uprising, John of Gaunt became a target for the rebels. Finding himself stranded in the north, he could have taken sanctuary at his castle in Dunstanborough, but he didn't consider it defensively strong enough to guarantee his safety should the castle come under attack by a rebel force. So instead, he sought shelter at Annick Castle, but they turned him away as they feared that should they be seen to be harbouring him, the castle would become a target for a rebel attack. This worrying period, which John survived, saw him expand and improve Dunstanborough's defences further over the next two years. In 1384, a Scottish army attacked the castle, but they lacked proper siege equipment and were unable to take the defences. John lost interest in the property. Dunstanborough Castle remained part of the Duchy of Lancaster, but the Duchy was annexed to the Crown when John of Gaunt's son, Henry IV, took the throne of England in 1399. So once again, Dunstanborough Castle became the property of the King. During the War of the Roses, the castle was under the control of the Earls of Lancaster and it was besieged by Yorkists. When the war ended in 1487, the castle was allowed to fall into decay. The fortress never recovered from the sieges of these campaigns, and by the 16th century, the Warden of the Scottish Marches described it as having fallen into wonderful, great decay. A report in 1584 suggested that it would cost Queen Elizabeth I £1,000 to restore the castle, but she argued that it was too far from the Scottish border to be worth repairing. As the Scottish border became more stable, the military usefulness of this castle greatly diminished, and King James I finally sold the property off into private ownership in 1604. The Grey family owned it for several centuries, when it continued to become increasingly ruinous. The castle's ownership changed during the 19th and 20th centuries, and by the 1920s its final owner, Sir Arthur Sutherland, could no longer afford to maintain Dunstanborough, and in 1929 it was given to the National Trust. When the Second World War broke out in 1939, there was a real danger that the Germans would target the Northumberland coastline as a means to invade. The castle's strategic position was perfect for it to be used as an observation post, and the site was refortified with trenches, barbed wire, pillboxes and a minefield. Today the castle is owned by the National Trust and run by English Heritage. The ruins are protected under UK law as a Grade 1 listed building. The origins of the name Dunstanborough are uncertain and have been debated for many years by historians. The most common theory is that it's a combination of the name Dunstan, which is a local village only a mile away, and the old English word burr, meaning fortress. Despite standing in ruins for over 500 years, the castle still stands today, imposing and formidable. With a walk of over one mile from the car park at Craster, it can be an incredibly atmospheric experience, catching the first glimpses of the castle as the unpredictable Northumbrian weather takes a turn for the worse and the roaring North Sea crashes wildly, only a couple of metres away from the well-trodden turf track leading to the castle. A castle as historic and remote as this wouldn't be complete without a long history of myths and legends, and of course some terrifying ghost stories, as well as actual reported paranormal phenomena. Dunstanborough Castle certainly doesn't disappoint.
One restless spirit that still walks the castle is the very same Thomas, 2nd Earl of Lancaster, who ordered its creation almost 700 years ago. He didn't lose his life at the castle, as his execution took place in Pontefract Hall. He was beheaded by a substitute executioner who'd neglected to sharpen his axe efficiently, and as a result it took 11 blows to remove the Earl's head. Even hardened soldiers couldn't bear to watch, and some of them even fainted. His spirit has an equally macabre appearance, a headless spectre with a blood-covered shirt and a jagged neck from the blunt axe blows that removed his head. His head is tucked under his arm, and his face is twisted and contorted in the agony of his death. It is said that his ghost is most often seen near Lilburn Tower and in the Inner Bailey. Interestingly, there were supernatural happenings being reported around Thomas from the moment he was beheaded, as miracles were reported at his tomb in Pontefract, and he became venerated as a martyr and a saint. I wonder if Thomas's inability to rest in peace could be linked to the fact that in 1942 it was reported by E. J. Rudsdale that some of Thomas's bones had been found in a box at Pascal's Auctioneers in Colchester, Essex, having been exhumed and removed from Pontefract Castle in 1885. Another of the more famous ghosts at Dunstanborough is that of Margaret of Anjou, wife of King Henry VI. Margaret was at the Battle of Hexham in 1464 where she was defeated. She retreated to the safety of Dunstanborough Castle and then later escaped in a boat from Dunstanborough Port, which is what the port at Craster was once known as. Her ghost has been seen at the Lilburn Tower, sometimes referred to as Queen Margaret's Tower. She is seen at the parapet and also ascending into thin air, where the staircase of the tower once stood. She is clothed in black and she weeps for those slain at the Battle of Hexham. Other recurrences that indicate the presence of Margaret are a chilling breeze, and then an invisible voice calling out the name Henry. She may be calling out for her husband who died at the Tower of London in May 1471, but it's believed to be more likely that the Henry in question is Henry Buford, Duke of Somerset, who had been a trusted friend and her lover for many years. He was at the Battle of Hexham with Margaret, but he was captured and paid the price for defeat by execution in the town square. There is a legend involving a prisoner being held within the castle, a young girl, who somehow manages to gain access to the key to her dungeon she was being held in. She escaped under the cover of darkness, throwing the key into a field to the northwest of the castle. The legend says that the key remains there to this day, buried beneath the earth, and as long as the key remains within this field, the land will be infertile. There has been a rumour for many centuries of secret tunnels stretching from Dunstanborough Castle to Craster Tower, Embleton and nearby Proctor Steads, as well as a tunnel running from the bottom of the castle well to the west of the castle. The purpose of these tunnels and whether they exist or ever existed is unknown. Undoubtedly the legend most famously associated with Dunstanborough Castle is that of Sir Guy the Seeker. First published in verse by Matthew Lewis as part of his romantic tales in 1808, the tale of Sir Guy sees the brave knight happen upon Dunstanborough Castle on a dark night during a torrential storm, when a flash of lightning reveals the ruined towers to him. He tries to find a way into the castle, but the gates were locked tight, so he sought refuge from the weather in an entranceway next to a single yew tree, awaiting a break in the weather. As he stood propped up on his lance, he listened to the never-ending downpour, when off in the distance he heard the toll of a bell chiming the late hour. On the final toll, which signalled midnight, 
a bolt of lightning whizzed past his head and struck the gates of the castle, bursting them wide open. From the darkness an old man emerged. He was gigantic, with a long white beard. He had a bald head covered in flames, and he wore a wondrous robe, tied closely by a metal chain aflame with fire licking around the white-hot metal, which was wrapped three times around his waist. The figure introduced himself as a warlock, and then told Sir Guy of a princess in dire need of his help. Sir Knight, Sir Knight, if your heart be right, and your nerves be firm and true, Sir Knight, Sir Knight, a beauty bright, endurance waits for you. He led the way, and brave Sir Guy didn't hesitate to follow, as if a maiden required his rescue, it was his duty as a knight to save her from peril. He followed the giant figure, reaching another gate which was locked with a living snake as its bolt. The snake eyed up Sir Guy, venom dripping from its hissing mouth burning the floor where it landed below. The snake readied itself to attack Sir Guy. Then the warlock extended his wand, striking the snake, and it fell to the ground, dead. The pair raced through the gate into the castle courtyard. The castle had appeared unoccupied, but this was far from the truth before Sir Guy stood over 100 skeletal horses, and lying fast asleep throughout the courtyard were over 100 armour-clad warriors, skeletal knights raised by an evil spell from all of the local graveyards to guard the princess. There was a crystal tomb between him and this army from hell, and in the tomb he could see the terrified princess, the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Guarding over this tomb were two huge skeletons, each one easily over nine feet tall. One held an enormous magical sword that had fallen from heaven, and the other held a horn, which the warlock claimed was the Horn of Merlin. The maid's fate depends on you, the warlock declared. What should you choose to awaken her from her slumber, horn or sword? Guy wanted to take the sword and cut down every single one of these damned knights, but he felt that he alone could not defeat them, so he went against his instincts and chose the horn. The moment he took the horn, the skeletal warriors awoke, stood up in union, and as one screamed their defiance to the skies above. Then they charged towards him, swords and axes at the ready. Sir Guy put the horn to his lips and blew. As the army of the dead charged at Sir Guy, the warlock's voice rose above the battle cries. Shame on the coward who sounded a horn when he might have unsheathed a sword. As the sword struck him, he was surrounded by a blue vapour from the warlock, and he lost consciousness. He awoke the next morning in the entranceway outside the castle. There was no sign of the storm that had raged the night before, and his faithful horse was tied to the yew tree next to him. Sir Guy thought this may have all been a dream, until he realised he was still holding the horn. Remembering the terrified face of the princess, imprisoned in her crystal tomb, he raced back to the castle gates, but they were locked tight once more. From that day forth it said that Sir Guy became obsessed, unable to let go of his quest to save the princess, and he was unable to leave Dunstanborough until he could find her and save her. He searched in vain for many years until his death, when he was buried in a nearby churchyard. However, it said that even in death, the ghost of Sir Guy is not given up and still seeks a way into the castle. Despite this almost certainly being nothing more than a legend born of Matthew Lewis's early 19th century poetry, Visitors to the castle occasionally report to this very day, catching a glimpse of a man appearing to be wearing a suit of armour, glinting in the sunlight, holding a horn and appearing to be frantically searching for something or someone. 
While writing my book Ghostly Northumberland way back in 2007, I spoke to Daryl Allen from Walkworth in Northumberland, who told me of an encounter he'd had in 1996. He was fishing at night on the rocks behind the castle when he experienced what he believes to have been a vision from the past. He said, I was fishing with my best friend at Dunstanborough when I really needed to relieve myself. I wandered back towards the castle and as I began to urinate, I was looking at the castle walls when I saw a man on horseback right through the castle gate into the empty courtyard. The moon was reflecting from his clothes as if he was covered in armour and I saw him draw a huge sword. I quickly zipped up and when I looked back the man on horseback had vanished. At the time I did not know the story of Sir Guy the Seeker but I do feel as though I experienced a glimpse back in time. Another Northumberland native who had a spooky encounter at Dunstanborough Castle was Graham Johnson who in 2021 told me of what happened when he visited the castle in 2014 with his wife and daughter and had an experience that he still cannot comprehend. He told me, It was a glorious summer's day. It was warm, the sun was shining and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. With it being a Sunday, my wife Melanie and I decided to take our six-year-old daughter Ellen to Dunstanborough Castle for an afternoon out. We live in Beadnell, so it's only a short 15-minute drive to Craster where we parked up and set off for the walk to the castle. We love the walk as it's not too far for Ellen and the fields are usually full of sheep which she loves. The sea is just to the right of you when you walk. With it being such a nice day there were a lot of people doing the same walk as us and an equal number of people walking in the opposite direction back from the castle towards Craster. We reached the castle and as we're members of the National Trust we showed our membership cards and went in for a look around. It was really busy and there were lots of people exploring, some people having a picnic on the grass and I saw some fishermen on the rocks behind the castle. I suggested I go up one of the sets of stairs to the higher parts of the castle and take a photo of Melanie and Ellen who would be stood below me. As I started climbing the staircase everything seemed to fall quiet. The visitors I could hear so clearly just stopped and I could feel wind on my face which seemed odd. When I reached the top of the staircase, I couldn't get my head around what I was seeing. The sky, which had been blue and sunny only a minute earlier, was dark and stormy. There was a strong wind, and I could feel rain on my face. It was really cold, and I was just in shorts and t-shirt. I looked down at my wife and daughter, but they weren't there. There was no one there. All of the visitors I saw, the people having a picnic, the fishermen, they were all gone. I shouted out for Melanie. I shouted out for Ellen but there was just silence. All I could hear was the wind and the crashing waves of the North Sea. I couldn't work out what was going on. I was scared. I raced back down the stairs and when I reached the bottom, the wind was gone. I could feel the warmth return. I looked around and I could see all the visitors again and there was Melanie and Ellen. I looked up at where I'd just been stood and there were visitors up there taking photos, but they hadn't been there when I'd just been up there. So what had happened to me? I told Melanie and she just laughed at me, assuming I was making up a story for Ellen's entertainment. I've not mentioned it to them again, or to anyone, since it sounds ridiculous. But what the hell did I experience? Thank you for joining me once again. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod 
or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod, where you will see photos galore relating to Dunstanborough Castle. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get exclusive episodes where you can join me on an actual paranormal investigation and you'll hear the audio as it happened. There's three episodes of this nature waiting for you right now. You've got an episode of Chillingham Castle, the Halloween episode from Middlethorpe Hall Hotel in York, and the enhanced version of episode 10 from the Edinburgh Vaults, which includes audio from the investigation. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoys the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help people to find How Haunted. I have a copy of my book Ghosts of York up for grabs. If you'd like to enter, it's incredibly easy to do. All you need to do is follow me on Twitter and or Instagram. My username for both is HowHauntedPod. You'll get one entry for each, and you can enter twice by following on both. The competition will end on the 24th of December 2022, and the winner will be announced on Twitter in the first podcast episode after the closing date. Next time we're headed to Belfast in Northern Ireland, and we will visit the only Victorian-era prison still standing in the city. Since it closed in 1996, visitors to the building have reported doors slamming shut all on their own, disembodied voices from within the now-empty cells calling out, begging for help. The unknown phantom of a man has been seen in Sea Wing. It's considered one of the most haunted places in Belfast, but is it worthy of such a reputation? Let's find out together next week, when we will do some time in Crumlin Road Jail. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted?
Thank you.